Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Antonio Garcia Martinez, also known as AGM. Antonio is a New York Times bestselling author with his book, Chaos Monkeys, which I've read, I really like. He's the founder of AdGrok. He's a former product manager at Facebook and also just amazing Twitterer. Antonio, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you for having me, Arn. In 2018, you published this really interesting piece talking about CCPA, GDPR, and your thesis at the time was it wouldn't really hurt Facebook and Google. In fact, it may actually make them much, much stronger. Fast forward a few years later, and it kind of played out exactly the way you predicted. Why did you have that foresight? And how do you think things are going to play out going forward? It's a controversial view at the time, although it seems so transparently obvious to me. The argument is that if you make the cost of compliance particularly higher, in other words, if you raise the expectation around all sorts of data privacy issues, not just around things like content moderation and policing how much of what you see versus privacy angle, if you make it basically harder to run interesting, novel, viral apps, then you're effectively creating a moat around that pool of innovation. Who's going to have the easiest time to comply with that? Obviously, the Google and Facebook of the world. That doesn't mean they like GDPR. They prefer living in a world in which there's as little regulation as possible. But if there is regulation, then would prefer it to be onerous. They would prefer that they kind of control or have input. Why do you say they don't like it? I mean, they've benefited greatly from it. They were almost certainly in the room helping to write it. Why do you say they don't like it? Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe I'm channeling the wrong animal spirits uh, when it comes to what Facebook's motivation, but they didn't exactly welcome it, right? They didn't sort of bring this into being hand in hand with GDPR. And it seemed clear that GDPR's intent was to bring companies like Google and Facebook to heel. I think Google's market share went up. It was already like 90% pre-GDPR in Europe. And I think it went up to over 90%. There's this big knob called privacy, right? The privacy activists, the Nazi zealots, want to crank that knob to 11, so to speak, and make it as high as possible. They think it's this fundamental social good. But the problem is on the other side of that knob that says privacy on one side, there's competitiveness on the other. What do I mean by that? Aside from just like the cost of compliance, which is annoying, but in theory, you could sort of soak up. It's the fact that GDPR, not to get too wonky, but in this podcast, it sounds like probably your audience doesn't mind a little bit of uh, detail. Yeah, let's get super wonky. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's two roles inside this GDPR concept. There's the controller and the processor of data. And what that means, in some sense, to have slightly more human language around it, it's like a first party versus a third party relationship to the data. And these terms are a little bit vague, and it's often not clear who is the first party. But just to take a simple toy example, when you go and use Facebook, I'm a user on Facebook, I'm using it. I have a first party relationship with Facebook. It says Facebook on the bar. I'm obviously have a relationship with Facebook, right? You know, if I go to, I don't know, some retailer, just a side of counter example, like Home Depot or REI, if you use a little plugins, you can see other pixels firing on that website. And what they're doing is possibly firing a pixel to Facebook and saying, hey, put this person in a certain audience because I want to retarget them or something else. Or even just Google Analytics, like how many people came to the page and how many people bounced off. Well, you're in a third party relationship in that context with Facebook or Google because you ask the person like, no, I'm shopping at REI. What do you mean Facebook's on here? Well, hate to break it to you, but they are. And in that role, they're kind of a processor of data. And what that means is they can use your data kind of as like a service provider would, but in some sense, they're not ultimately on the hook 
I'm using very reductionist language here, but ultimately they're kind of not on the hook for what you do with that data, right? REI is because it's like REI that owns that relationship. And a lot of that is, is as it should be, to be clear, right? Like it's true. REI has greater rights. With great rights come great responsibilities, right? They can use your data to optimize your experience. But on the other hand, if you say, you know what? REI, I'm sick of your marketing emails. I want out. They have to opt you out. And in some sense, if they don't opt you out of Facebook targeting, it's not really Facebook's problem. It's REI's problem. But that's all great. And that, that all kind of makes sense. And to be clear, a lot of the GDPR framing isn't crazy. The problem is if you make it such that third-party usage of data is kind of impossible, meaning you have to have opt-in permission for everything you do on it, then it means that third parties in some sense kind of tend to go away. Go back to that REI example, right? REI, you go and put a camping tent on your shopping cart, you don't buy it. REI wants to show you an ad for it. Maybe it's annoying, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a good reminder. You're like, oh yeah, shit, I have to go buy that camping tent. It makes it harder for third parties to actually enable that because in some sense, some of the companies you've invested in or worked in or in, you don't know who they are and they would be- Privacy, it's very personal. Right. What's private to you might not be private to me. I might want very, very targeted ads. I don't want to see spam. To me, that's like a good thing. For someone else, it's a bad thing. If I show up in New York for a quick day trip, I might not want my mother to know that I'm there because I have a Jewish mother and she would be very upset if I don't come visit her, even if I'm only there for a few hours. That might ruin my relationship with my mom. You know, I might not want that broadcasted on Facebook that I'm in New York for a few hours. Everyone has a different dial. In some places, people are super private. They might be super private about their kids or not as private about them or vice versa. How should in the ideal world work? Privacy is interesting. And I think it's in context. You cited, you care about your mother, who in general, you probably don't feel a lot of privacy paranoia around your mother, right? You probably share a lot with your mother. But when it comes to being in New York on that one day that you're not going to swing by, you're worried about it, right? So it's contextual. There's this term called contextual privacy by Helen Nissenbaum, who's a professor at Stanford. She has an interesting book on it. The short version is that humans make privacy decisions based on a certain context. If you're sharing health data with your doctor so that doctor can make better healthcare decisions for you, you're willing to do that. I want the doctor to know shit about me and help me get better because I have issues, right? If that doctor were to turn around and sell your data to a pharma company so that they could show you ads inside your Instagram feed, suddenly that context breaks down. It's the same data. And I think this is where a lot of the privacy activists get it wrong. A lot of it frame it like a human right in this and that, which, I mean, maybe you can make an argument for that. Any human right, freedom of speech, assembly, religion, it's not an absolute human right, right? I think most humans, how they actually traverse the world, they see privacy as a commodity or as a store of capital in some sense that they then trade for other things, but they trade privacy for community. I'm in a bunch of private groups or Facebook, and I give away a lot of my private. They know shit about what I'm doing in exchange for the sense of community I derive from that. Or in the case of the Fourth Amendment, to get all constitutional about it, we give up a little bit of our privacy. If cops have a warrant, it turns out they can't kick in my door. But we do that in exchange for a little bit of safety, because if we didn't have that ability, bad people would get away with doing bad things. There's always this tension. And that's the one thing I object to the privacy conversation is framing this as absolute thing. I often cite the example, it's a little bit snarky, but you know, when Facebook was catching a lot of heat for its privacy problems, in 2016, 17, point to me where in the Facebook usage graph did this privacy crisis happen? Because I can guarantee you, you look at the curve and you won't be able to spot, was there mass abandonment of Facebook? No, there wasn't. Because in some sense, in people's minds, the trade-off was still okay. 
And maybe that's a misperception. And if they were better educated, they'd make a different trade-off. Maybe. I suspect that most people are actually pretty good about making that trade-off. Just one last thing on privacy. Privacy is a fascinating thing. I've been meaning to write a lot more about it. It's a weird concept. It doesn't appear even once in the constitution as a word. Of course, it appears indirectly in other ways. And the the right to privacy, as we call it, was literally a, a sort of legal treatise written in 1890 by Louis Brandeis, a future Supreme Court justice that kind of established privacy law in in the United States and much of the Western world. It's a right that had to be invented, which is fine. A lot of rights are invented, but it was kind of a cope dealing with a post-industrial urban society, which a lot of the traditional bonds of human society were kind of breaking down. This right to live as a stranger among strangers is kind of unusual. For a period of my life, I lived in a little island northwest of Seattle in this very small community in this off-grid year. I live like a total tree hippie in the middle of nowhere. And I'd never really lived in a small town before. And the weird thing is that their privacy, people respect your privacy. Like people don't have fences up. No one goes on your land. But it's weird. If you tried to conceal your background or what you do, people would be suspicious because it's like, well, what's this guy hiding? You don't have privacy in a small town. Everyone knows who's cheating on who, who's an asshole. There is no privacy in a small town. And everyone's kind of cool with it because there's other regulatory mechanisms there. Like people aren't assholes because you might run into them in the grocery store. Anyhow, there's a whole world there that doesn't exist online. There's also a trade-off between almost free speech and freedom of the press and privacy as well. In Europe, they have this notion of right to be forgotten. In America, in some ways, that would be an anti-press thing. It's a different cultural lens of looking at privacy. Yeah, I mean, this right to be forgotten thing is probably the one element of GDPR that most clashes with the sort of Anglo-American legal tradition. And just to sketch it out a little bit, it sounds very dramatic, but it actually is a thing in GDPR and in just the European privacy discourse. And what it means is that I think one of the earliest test cases in Spain, I follow Spanish news because I'm Spanish, whatever, was a guy, I think he filed for bankruptcy or had unpaid debts or something. There was a link on a website that Google was linking to that mentioned this. And he wanted it expunged from the record for whatever reason. And he did. Google had to unlink the website. And so the idea is if something happens in the past that's not newsworthy, I should be allowed to have it deleted. Of course, there's counter arguments to that. If somebody committed unspeakable crimes in the past and they're your kid's elementary school teacher, well, maybe you want to know about that, (laughs) right? And so again, like every right, it doesn't seem unlimited. But that's part of the idea around it. And that's why Data expungeability and deletability is a big deal in the way privacy is being conceived of now. And like, if you consider not to go into a rabbit hole, crypto and Web3 and blockchain, right? You can't delete data from a lot of those things. And so it's, it kind of collides. Blockchain is the anti-privacy in a way, because it, it stores everything. It may store it in a pseudonymous way, but it stores everything forever. There's no way to delete it. There's no way you could, if you wanted to expunge the record, there's no way to do it. I mean, to a first pass, that's definitely true, right? In the sense that you can't, for those who aren't into crypto web three, you can't delete yeah. blocks from the In some ways, page. it's not GDPR compliant. It is, it, is, it is not GDPR compliant. That said, a lot of data that actually makes three go isn't actually on chain, right? A lot of it is pointers to off-chain data, and then you could change that pointer and make it go away. Sure. But like if I give somebody some Bitcoin or send someone some Bitcoin or something like that, and then later I want to expunge the record that I gave some, there's no real, there's no way to do that because it's, it's there forever, right? Well, there, there, I mean, this isn't like a web three show, but there's also what's called this, what's called private chain. So some of the transactions can get encrypted such that right. not everybody okay. can yeah, see I could them. do it all. I could do it somewhere else. Yes. Okay. You're right that broadly web three is fascinating for a bunch of reasons and it does architect things 
in, in what's very much at variance with like the traditional model for like internet engineering for the past 20 years, which is also guided privacy law. And so, yes, I do think that going forward, there's going to be kind of a big collision between like GDPR, conventional privacy thinking and Web3 when it gets big enough to actually matter and people start asking those questions. When we think about privacy, how do you think about aggregated data on people? Because a lot of really interesting studies we could do about the world could come from being able to mine the data about the IRS, which is this incredible 70-year-plus longitudinal study on millions of Americans, or mine the data from medical data from the NHS or from Medicare or whatever it might be. For sure, it's sensitive data, but there probably are ways to do it in a way that protects everyone's privacy, whether it's differential privacy or only seeing aggregated data or creating synthetic data from the real data so that researchers could work with it. How do you think about that? Because there's a huge good to society that can come from it, but there's still probably some risks. Maybe the risks are very, very low, but there are some risks that someone could be de-identified, re-identified, et cetera. I think my views represent probably not a mainstream view on that. I'm a lot less concerned about privacy, at least as regards corporate entities. I mean, if you want to get very paranoid sounding about the NSA and the FBI and whatnot, I can see being worried about the government because you know they have guns that can put you in jail. I'm a lot less worried about corporations that want to sell you a pair of shoes because it's like, okay, fine, sell me a pair of shoes or not or whatever. So I, I tend not to care that much about it. I mean, you're right. There's a lot you could do with that data. For example, classic example being the COVID thing. We've got a tracker in every human in the Western world. <laughs> Couldn't that be used to some social good in terms of figuring out how COVID spread? Some states and some companies had some initiatives there. I think I've gotten a couple alerts occasionally, but it clearly doesn't work that well or as well as it could, given the data we have. I think a lot of that's our inability to actually make trade-offs as a society, not just in privacy when it comes to, I mean, if you really want to blow this up, abortion, gun control, like the whole panoply of shit that we're undecided about. We have a lot of trouble coming into collective decisions about it. And I think privacy is just one of those areas. Dina Srinivasan was on World of Das. She's arguing that these kind of tech giants should be much more heavily regulated and scrutinized, and maybe even some cases broken up. How do you think we should be dealing with these very big tech companies? I wrote one piece back in like the Elizabeth Warren heyday about antitrust and whether it's worth breaking up Facebook. I was maybe more sympathetic to the idea than people might guess from my other statements. Like it's not crazy to ask the question of like, well, what good does the average consumer get out of Facebook owning Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp? It's not obvious, right? Of course, our antitrust law was created in the days of the railroad barons and then updated in the 60s and 70s with Bork. And it wasn't really engineered in an age of the internet. And I think a lot of it would have to be upgraded in a very real way to do any of what we're talking about. So I think antitrust, I don't think it's a cure-all, but again, in the case of like a Facebook, I worked at Facebook, I've defended them publicly in the past, but it's clear that they buy companies that are competitive threats in some form or another. Oculus, I mean, Facebook wants to make a big bid in VR, so it buys a super competitive. You'd have to be super naive to claim the contrary on that. And I assume most companies do that, right? Most big companies would do that. You could talk into an antitrust case. I think regulation for me would be a lot harder I have some exposure there. I work for a, a think tank called the Lincoln Network, which not the Lincoln Project, by the way, totally different organization, but it's based in DC and tries to bring together tech practitioners with legislators to actually try to make legislation less dumb and the conversation more real and more interesting. So I have a little bit of exposure to how the sausage is made, not a lot, but a little. I mean, just to mention an example, there's a bill that Senator Lee in Utah just floated that it's probably not going to pass, but it's interesting. It's called the- um, This is the regulating Google the, for uh, the ads and breaking up their ad stack. 
I mean, that's how an ad tech person would perceive it. That's not how it's built, but yeah, it's effectively, it's basically blowing up the Lumascape basically for Google is what it is. For those who aren't familiar, so the, the Google Display Network, the best analogy to this site is like the bigger financial world, but imagine a world in which like Goldman owned the exchange, the brokerage, the bank, the credit card company, like literally every damn component in the pipeline. If you're trading stocks, like it's illegal, you have to have the best interest of whoever you're representing in the ad tech world. The house could have its own interest and you don't necessarily have to have the interests of the buyers and the sellers. I think the Mike Lee bill is basically saying you have to have the interests of them and therefore you probably can't represent both sides. I was reading it recently for Lincoln reasons. You can't take both sides of the deal. <laughs> you can't be the sell side and the buy side effectively is what it's saying. Not only that, it imposes a level of transparency that the ad tech markets just don't have. I mean, when I, you know, I came from finance originally, I, my first job out of school was working at Goldman trading and it struck me as odd in the ad tech world. This is like in the days of like right media and the first exchanges and ad X and all this stuff. It struck me as odd that there was no price transparency. If you didn't win the auction, you have no idea what it went for. It's like, well, what do you, how, do you, how do you know anything? There isn't like an open, unlike in the financial world, if you sign up for these fancy brokerages, you'll like see the market. You'll see the buy side, you'll see the sell side, you'll see what crosses, you see everything that's going on. I mean, there could be, even in crypto, you can see that, right? In ad tech, you don't see that at all. Imagine you open your E-Trade brokerage account. You said, hey, I'm willing to pay hundred bucks a share for Google. And they're like, uh, nope. We're not going to tell you the price, but that doesn't buy it. You'd be like, wait, what the, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, you got to show me something here. You and I are OGs of the ad tech world. We've known for a long time that there isn't transparency. We know for a long time that Google has a lot of advantages in the market. Every sophisticated ad tech buyer I know has known that. It's not like it's new information, yet they still choose to use Google. It's kind of like caveat emptor. Like they know that they're maybe getting the take rate is probably higher than it should be, et cetera, but they're still making that choice and they're making a relatively informed choice. These are not stupid people. Why can't they just make that choice? Well, I mean, they could. And again, to be fair with Google, in this ecosystem we're talking about, there's non-Google alternatives. Every little box in the Lumascape or in the MarkTech landscape, there's like a non-Google alternative you can use from that. But somehow it curiously always seems to work better when you're using the Google version of it. <laughs> you seem to get better prices. And in fact, I think the Wall Street Journal ran a story in which there was collusion between the buy side and the sauce. Or no, no, they weren't actually doing second price options. They were using third prices. There's obviously room for manipulation there. So yeah, on the one hand, you could just like, don't use the Google colored box on the board. On the other hand, it's clear that there's manipulation going on. And what's the alternative, right? They are super powerful. So you're, you're just, okay, I'm going to use them. A couple of questions about data and journalism. And there's a lot of the public's perception about everything is kind of fueled by the media. How can we build a world where we bridge the gap between kind of perception and reality? I have never read a news article in my entire life where I had like the intimate knowledge about that news article that turned out to be factually accurate. And obviously that, that's not necessarily because the reporter is a bad person. It's just, it's really hard to write about a complex topic in a very accurate way. How do we get that to be better for the end consumer of that article? Yeah, I mean, and the best take on this is the famous Gelman amnesia that uh, Michael Crichton coined, which is, you know, you read an article concerning your industry, you realize that it's completely backwards, that in fact, they have the causality exactly reversed. Literally, it starts raining because streets are wet, like everything is just wrong. You somehow forget that. And then you read other parts of the newspaper and you think, oh yeah, this is obviously the correct version of events. You know, that's definitely true. I, I have to say, as much as I've publicly criticized journalists in the past, and I still do, I wouldn't say it's 100%. Gelman amnesia rate. I occasionally read books or pieces by certain journalists that seem to the extent you can document anything. Well, like I wrote, my book was a memoir. I accept 
that there's probably mistake. I'm sure there's mistakes in it or one-sided descriptions of things. And so journalists are in the same boat. So nothing can be perfect. You know, I have read stuff by Steve Levy. I kind of like uh, Brad Stone at Bloomberg has written some interesting books. There is an incentive also, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And that's just an incentive that's kind of endemic and maybe even more endemic to journalism today than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, partially also when reporting about companies like Facebook that, let's face it, are eating newspapers lunch. There should almost be disclosures when the New York Times does a story on Facebook. You realize that Facebook is upstreaming your distribution or Twitter for that matter, and you're in a competitive relationship. And of course, the journalists will say, oh, but there's this firewall or whatever between the business and the editorial side. I, I don't know if I quite believe that. There's also political bias implicit, right? The media tends to swing kind of, not always, but somewhat left. And I think a lot of that tends to be anti-corporate or anti-tech. I was literally in a fight in a private group just this morning with DC people about big tech. And again, they're so in the swamp in DC trying to regulate these companies and tech so doesn't want to deal with DC, <laughs> right? And so there's almost, there's a cultural mismatch there. And there's just a priority mismatch in terms of how they view the world. It does seem that like when people want to regulate big tech, they often end up regulating small tech. Whenever they actually do something, it does seem to even going against the spirit of what they want to accomplish. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, GDPR being a classic example for that. Whatever the fraction, I don't know how the hard number is because you'd have to have access to internal dashboards, but there's probably ways you can measure this. Whatever the fraction of ad spend in Europe is for Google and Facebook, I'm sure it went up after GDPR. It, it, it For sure it went up. And so there they are trying to kill Google and Facebook, and they just nuked a lot of the small competitors around Google and Facebook. And that again, that's why I'm kind of anti-regulation when it comes to tech, because the thought that tech has negative externalities that need to be managed, that's true. Like, I, I think that that's not wrong. I just wonder, the regulation never quite seems to do it, though. <laughs> that's the problem. You always these things are a little bit weird when they started to say, when they told all the cigarette companies that they couldn't advertise on television and they couldn't advertise in certain places and stuff like that, it made these cigarette companies like way more profitable because first of all, they didn't have to worry about any new entrants. It ended up being a great thing for the cigarette companies. We thought this was like a terrible thing. We're trying to go against it, but these things have a way of all these unintended consequences that are very hard to understand. Yeah, I didn't know that about the cigarette companies. I mean, that said, cigarette companies are bad, um, right? And cigarette smoking is bad. They are bad, but doing some weird regulation on them may not be the right way to go. There might be other ways you can do than basically stopping new entrants in the space or something like that and making them way more profitable. The counter argument to what I just said, of course, is like, okay, Antonio, then what do you do? Tech clearly creates negative externalities. What do you do? It might sound like a cop-out, but I'm reminded of like the start of truism that most startups' problems aren't actually technical. It's usually not, unless you're really at the hairy edge of innovation, it's typically not technical problems that are really the problem. It's human problems, either internally or outside the company, they're actually the problem, but are much harder to solve. Technical problems, they're not always easy, but there's a way to solve technical problems. If your CEO is crazy, or the engineering team is misled, or your sales pitch is off, or there isn't product market fit, these are all human problems. The CEO is always crazy. By the way, the CEO is always crazy. There's never a sane CEO. That doesn't exist. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like all these critics, like, oh, the sociopathic CEOs. Like, I never met one who wasn't. Show me a nice, healthy, well balanced CEO who spends time with his kids on weekends. You could say the same thing about a US senator as well. Yeah. I was about to say, they don't exactly seem the most sane people in the world either. So, what do you do? Well, I, I don't know. I just think it is true that the pace of technological change, as regards certain dimensions, I was literally having this debate this morning when it comes to media and perception and community building, that has been dizzying. I think we're probably both of the same, roughly the same generation that remembers the world without the internet. Remember an analog world, you probably got letters from your parents in college. I did. That's still how people communicate. Like you didn't send email. I you couldn't even call my parents in college because it was too expensive. 
kids these days were much like an old men saying, get off our lawn. You know, this remote communication thing wasn't just such a given. In the pace of that, not a physical hardware technology, but of media and software technology has been dizzying. And I think we as a society just haven't caught up with that. And I think the fixes to it, again, I, I don't think they're technical fixes. There's no amount of content moderation that Facebook's going to do that's going to fix our broken polity that can't actually organize itself to solve problems. How do you think of the apology Srinivasan idea on this is to decentralize journalism, maybe using the blockchain? Where do you think his idea makes sense and where do you think it breaks down? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this apology. You know, I consider him a friend and I think he's a very smart guy that I, I've talked to a lot and I, I think it's great. You know how in physics or in math, like a vector is both a direction and a magnitude. Balaji often points in the right direction, but he gets the magnitude wrong. <laughs> well, right. If you have the direction wrong, the magnitude is almost irrelevant. You're guaranteed to end up in the wrong place. So I think Balaji is very close to almost always correct about the direction. I do wonder about the magnitude of the change that he wants to drive. He's pitched stuff about putting a bounty on the blockchain or fact-checking via blockchain, but you know, all this stuff, dude, I mean, that sounds great in principle, but I'm not sure how that would work in practice. And again, I don't think solving the fact-checking incentive problem, again, gets us to where we, where we want to go. It is interesting that once you become a super blockchain proponent, every single problem solution has to do with the blockchain. And to me, blockchain is a tool. It's an amazing tool. It can't be used for everything. There's a lot of things where it, the blockchain just doesn't make sense for that particular thing. I mean, to a man with a blockchain, everything looks like a DAO. Just to take a, to take a riff on the thing. Again, to get back to the direction rather than magnitude point, you know, I think his point about decentralized journalism is correct. The fact that mainstream outlets just picking on New York Times, WAPO, on the tech side, Fast Company back in the day, Wired, whatever. The fact that we've taken the monopoly or the gatekeeping on media from them, I think is a good thing. The fact that Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, when he wants to talk to his market, his users in the wider world, doesn't sit down and do this very choreographed interview with whoever the New York Times tech person is. He just posts a blog post, he tweets it, it goes viral, and that's it. Coinbase has addressed the world. It doesn't need media. And he doesn't have to worry about it being edited because even back in the day, you might write an op-ed and they would change the headline on you or something like that. I think that aspect of Balaji's statement is great. Yeah. And I think, I think more and more companies should do that. I mean, on the other hand, it, it's also weird, right? Particularly when you think about Web3, there's a lot of, everyone's become a celebrity. Everyone has like blue check or a large following. So even now the CEOs of large companies or even startup companies have a following. It drives me a little weird. When I was doing AgRock ages ago, all of 10 years ago at NYC, the blog was very popular. It was super viral. It was weird. Paul Graham criticized, why are you doing wasting your time writing this bullshit? Go build. This is a waste of time. That public marketing side of it has now become a core function of any entrepreneur or anybody in the startup space. I think people look at Elon Musk or something where the person's brand could have some value or could attribute to some value to the company. Look at Elon's whole bid to by Twitter and the fact that he had these pissy flame wars with the CEO of Twitter in public, which on the one hand is good. I think having these things be out in public is probably better than having a closed door backroom thing. On the other hand, man, what a fucking circus everything is all the time, right? It's, um, it's bizarre how performative everything becomes when everything is like a viral Twitter thread. Now, a couple of personal questions. I'm a huge fan of yours, but I also think you're legitimately crazy sometimes. You just flew out to the Ukraine war starts. You fly out to Poland, walk over the border into Ukraine. Hey, what even makes you do some of those things? And then how did that change your notions of what was going on the ground in Ukraine? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, for starters, everyone freaks out at that. Like it wasn't, it really wasn't that dangerous, right? I mean, once I was there, it's, things are cooked hotter than they're eaten. It wasn't that bad. I was in the Western part of Ukraine, which at the time wasn't the front lines, although there was a few missile strikes in the approximate area, but you know, it's the chances of getting hit by a bus in a major city. It's not really, it wasn't really that risky. I, you know, I went there for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it's history happening before your eyes. How can you not go and kind of see it? History in the capital H almost Francis Fukuyama sense of like history has restarted, right, in a big way. In a big way. And then two, the, the media discourse in the US about Ukraine, just, again, my product manager bullshit detector is still working. And it just reeked a bullshit story to me. This can't be what's really going on. With the help of a colleague at Lincoln Network, who's been, who's actually reported from conflict zones and stuff, we went together and we found a fixer and a driver. Like it's hard to move around war zones. Everything's broken down. Everything's overwhelmed with refugees or with, it's a chaotic environment. So we, we did manage to move around a little bit, which was cool. And yeah, how did it change my perception? I mean, I often cite two things. It's funny, I, I did a debate with Glenn Greenwald about this at the Jason's thing, and it just came out yesterday and it seems to be doing well. Uh, I'll say what I said there, which is the two takeaways from Ukraine. One, the refugee crisis is overwhelming and the humanitarian. A quarter of the Ukrainian population is now displaced, either internally or they've crossed borders and left. Although I understand a lot of people are going back now that the war has settled down a little bit. It's hard to imagine it, but if you're standing at the border at these border crossings in eastern Poland, you're just standing there. The typical Ukrainian refugee, the men aren't allowed to leave because they're all conscripted. This is a war of extermination almost. Well, it's a total war of this nation being invaded, and I'll get into that in a second. So the people who are actually leaving, the typical Ukrainian refugees, you know, a woman in her whatever, call it 20s, 30s, early 40s, with two kids, a dog and a little carrier, and maybe a grandma, and a little roller bag, literally walking across the border, because getting vehicles across is kind of difficult, and the trains are infrequent and overwhelmed. They'll manage to somehow catch a ride to the border, and then literally just walk across with like the clothes on their back and a suitcase, and that's it. I know dozens of friends of mine in Europe that are housing these people because they don't have a place to stay, and so different families are taking them in. The European reaction has been incredible. And then you go to the border, and as you said, you've got random Europeans who just buy an old ambulance, fill it up with medical supplies, and then drive it across to the border and hand it off to Ukrainians. Or you have people who show up and say, I'm a family man, I've got a house wherever in Northern Italy, I'll house you and your kids and you know, just come and live here. And, and then all the European nations, of course, have removed visa restrictions so Ukrainians can live and work there and stuff. So yeah, all of Europe in a, in a major way has reacted to the reality of it. I think Americans tend to be stuck at the sort of meta media level and they treat Ukraine as this current thing, like this virtual thing to fight over. The, the reality of it isn't driven home to them because of course it's not next door and they're not seeing the reality of it. So that would be point one. The point two is what I was hinting at, which is Ukraine is embroiled in a Klaus Witzian, to, to quote the guy who coined the term Klaus Witz, an early 19th century military theorist, is in a state of total war. And what that means is every resource of society, civilian, military, social, cultural, even religious, the gathering points for military supply where I donated my body armor was in a church in Lviv, right? The priest was actually collecting it. So every resource, every avenue of society is dedicated to this war, supplying the war and supporting the troops and fighting or trying to get women and children out. It's one or the other. You're either supporting soldiers or trying to get refugees out. And the town I was in is called Lviv. It's in Western Ukraine. And it was sort of the central clearinghouse. It was literally men and, and trucks and a lot of American Jews and Ukrainians are because it was a prominent city in a lot of the history of Eastern Europe. And so it's just it's men and supplies and vehicles going east and women and children and refugees going west. The entire city is that. It was incredible to see. And, I, and again, 
you and I or anybody in the U.S. has never really experienced this. We've experienced it through like World War II movies and stuff. But you get there and the scenes at the train station, I was in this train station. And of course, the train schedules are all wrecked because who knows when the trains get through. But a train going west pulls in and everyone just rushes for it. It looks like a scene out of an evacuation when like the Germans taking Paris and like people are just jumping into these train cars. And it's like, man, this is bonkers. That's life there now. And everyone is completely committed to the cause. Everyone punctuates their sentences with, we will win. From you personally, you want to be part of history. And I remember before I had kids, I kind of had that same urge where I always wanted to be part of history. I went to Ukraine in 2004 and I was an election observer, what became the revolution there. And I did a bunch of those things, but that was like pre-kids. And then once I had kids, I'm like, maybe I don't want to be part of history all the time. How do you think about that for yourself? Right. I mean, the reality is, if you go at the very philosophical sort of Hegelian level, history with a capital H sucks. History is human struggle and death and political conflict and genocides and famines and pestilences. And it's history is all very exciting, but you don't actually want to live it. I'm a Fukuyama at some level. I think he's one of the underrated intellectuals. If you haven't read The End of History, it's, it's way more than the title would indicate. <laughs> There's a lot more there. And I think I finished one of my essays on Ukraine saying that what Ukraine wants nothing more than to join the EU. The EU is kind of the home of the Fukuyaman last man. There people live in a beautiful museum, effectively, which is Europe, under a, an American military shield for the most part, and go about and live their lives in a, in a way completely distanced from the uglinesses of the past. It literally is a retirement home inside a museum underneath an American military shield. That's what Europe is. And, you know, and I have an EU passport. I've lived in Europe, like I'm pro-Europe in many ways, but you'd be deluding yourself if you parsed it as anything other than that. The Ukrainians want to join that. They want prosperity. They want the frivolity of the post-historical world. But in order to get there, they have to go through the ugliest parts of history. They have to fight a war of survival for the nation. And so they're stuck in this weird bind where they would love nothing more than to join the EU and NATO and have pronouns be the nation's biggest issue rather than sourcing artillery rounds for their old Soviet era artillery, which was a problem for a while. They'd love to think about that, but they can't. They're kind of still stuck in history, history that's been imposed on them by the Russians. You and I might say we might want to go back to history, but here we are. We're not there, right? Like ultimately I left Ukraine and I opted not for that. Even then you spend some time off the grid. You mentioned an island all in Washington state, but you didn't stay there forever. You had the option and you came back to the crazy world of Twitter that we live in, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it was financial necessity. Some of it was just like, well, my family wasn't there. Opting out of that world meant also opting out of family, which wasn't good. You recently converted to Judaism, or I don't know how recent it was. I'd be interested, what led you down that choice? And how do you think about religion in this kind of modern world that we're in? So strictly speaking, I haven't done the mikvah dunk, which is the last step. I still need to go in front of the Beit Din and defend the thesis. Converting to Judaism is like doing a graduate degree. Yes, it's very hard. It's like they don't want people in their religion or something. It's very, very weird. I mean, it depends on the synagogue these days. I think the attitude is a little bit different. They are more receptive because a lot of the synagogues, they have like a membership thing. They need new members. Synagogues are declining membership. They need more people. Well, except for Chabad ones. But that's a whole separate, that's a whole separate story. They're not necessarily against converts, but it is kind of a long road. There's a lot of study involved. You have to change your thinking about a lot of things. We're not quite at the end of that tunnel yet, but we're pretty far down it. Yeah, I mean, I wrote an essay about this as well called Why, Why Judaism? Some of it's about Judaism specific, because I think the religion is very beautiful and very interesting in many ways. On the other hand, I think part of it's driven by the sort of God-shaped hole at the center of liberalism. The post-history, peace, consumption, 
the semblance of democracy, at least in the West. It's all very comfortable, but it leaves a lot of questions unanswered and a lot of needs unsatisfied, in my opinion. Everyone I know is super religious. They might not be religious about traditional religion, but then if they're not, they channel that into something else. They believe in something much bigger than themselves. They believe in something that can't be proven. They are often very zealous about that thing. And they and someone who doesn't believe that they think is often bad. We're all religious somewhere in our lives. William James in the Varieties of Religious Experience defined, I'm paraphrasing, but religion in the broadest sense is the belief that there's some unseen order to which all of society should be converging, <laughs> that there is some moral metaphysics that human society should somehow subscribe to. And I have yet to meet anyone who's not a total nihilist or someone in a, who's a drug addict or somebody just completely out of it who doesn't believe that to some degree or another. I don't think it's possible to actually live staring into the abyss of nothing. It's funny when people like look and say, oh, do you believe in God? Religion, it feels so antiquated. Like you said, I've yet to meet someone who doesn't believe in religion. A lot of these people believe in lots of types of religion, all this wokeness stuff. Not to say that every social justice movement is wrong or mistaken. There could be something real there. Certainly the social justice movements of the past were very correct, civil rights movement, abolition, et cetera. There's a strong religious overtone to it. And it fits within a certain Protestant Calvinistic mentality about purity and the messianic age and elevating victimhood to divinity, which is a very Christian notion. We talked about blockchain. I mean, there's a religion on blockchain. There's a religion about being environmentalist. Not to say that these things are wrong or bad or anything like that, but there is a very similar take on that that any religion would have. There's no no religion. There's only bad religion and better religions. And so, and then if you look at things, you might ask, well, okay, but then why Judaism? Judaism is unique. You know, it's hard to discuss these things. In the US, at least, most exposure to religion comes through Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity. Like that's the usually, or Protestant Christianity, like that's the religiosity that kind of often bursts into the public square. Judaism is very different. Not, not that that's a moral judgment either way, but it's very different than Christianity. And so I think one of the ways that it's different is that, you know, Judaism isn't what's called an orthopraxic religion. What, what matters is how you practice it and the values and the community that's kind of built around it and the tradition that you're kind of maintaining, your direct relationship to God or whatever is kind of irrelevant. The list of essay questions that I'm going to have to answer for the Beit Din, which is the rabbinical court before I convert, they don't ask even a single question about your personal relationship with God or whether you believe in God at all. At all. At all. They ask about your practice. They ask about your community. They ask about your family. They ask about everything around the religious practice that is impacted by it. But, you know, do you believe in, it doesn't even come up. That wouldn't necessarily be true for every sub-movement inside Judaism or every rabbi, to be clear. It's funny that it's not really part of it. Judaism is both a religion, which in some ways people can join. I can join the blockchain religion or something, but then it's also a culture, right? And so you're joining not only a religion, but you're joining a actual culture that has, you know, thousands of years of history. Like, how do you feel about that? That's the Ashkenazi infused flavor of Judaism that you find in the US, right? Or the Mizrahi. I mean, you go to Israel, it's not just bagels anymore. In fact, you're going to find a lot more falafel than bagels <laughs> in most of Israel. So it's not really the bagel side, but yeah, but joining this long tradition, right? I mean, there's this uh, statement, I think it's either De Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but you know, if converts, it's as if you were there at Sinai when the tablets were handed down. The thought is that you are joining what is also has like an ethno-tribal element to it. And Judaism has always been this very vague, I mean, it, you know, it's also the question of like, who is a Jew? Like even the state of Israel hasn't definitively answered that question, although it has to because it has what's called the law of return, which means that any Jew has citizenship there. But what Judaism is, is, is still an unsolved question. So yeah, I know it's interesting. No. 
I thought when you wrote your piece announcing your decision to convert, which by the way, was very beautiful. I hope others read. You had a quote there which said, the eventual cost of optionality in life, all the commitments you don't make to preserve your ability to instantly change course is not worth the upside that optionality eventually produces. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. You know, part of this is anecdotal to me, right? Because, you know, I came blazing out of grad school and for a bunch of personal reasons aren't worth going into, you know, feeling I needed to make it in various channels. And I first tried finance, but then credit crisis happened right when I was there. So that blew up. So I came west to ad tech and that's where this whole party started. The mentality was always maximizing optionality and keeping options open because, of course, there was a lot of big upside things. Doing a startup at YC, going to Facebook in the early days, there's a lot of bets that resemble the payoff diagram of a call option, which if you see it, you know, past a certain point, it goes up steeply. So you want to maintain those options. It's, it's almost like a being a venture capitalist investing in companies, except you're betting on kind of your own time instead. So there was a very much a focus on that. But in retrospect, when I realized a lot of my decision making was obviously completely over-indexed on maintaining optionality, when often a better outcome would have been achieved by actually saying no to lots of optionality. Focusing or eliminating or putting yourself in a box in some sort of way. Right, right. Whether that meant you know, not being such an asshole at Facebook and staying there longer or focusing on family or not going off and homesteading a property on the San Juans as a random lark. There's a lot of ways in which you could have said like, no, let's not do that and just focus on this thing. Yeah. If you think of getting married, I mean, that's the ultimate reduction of options. Yet for many, many people who get married, it's one of the most fulfilling things that people do in their life. I mean, I would say even bigger than that is having children. You can't divorce your children. <laughs> you can divorce a spouse and it might be painful and, and expensive and whatnot. That's a good point. So having children is even a bigger reduction of optionality. Right. Which in my case, if you've read uh, some of my book, happened accidentally. I had kids out of wedlock, three kids total, different women, but whatever. It was a non-decision decision that happened. And then I realized the value of what that was. And yet it was something that I wouldn't have opted myself into, which of course, in retrospect, would have been a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I think kids are a very good example of that. Even in companies, if you say, oh, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. It's really hard to actually be creative if you could do anything. But if you just say, we're in this box, we're going to stay in this box, no matter what we stay in this box. Now it gives everyone in the company a lot more license to be creative within that box. That's right. I mean, creativity is when you're actually forced to work within limitations. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? This will be repetitive, but it's what we just talked about. Maximizing optionality all the time, I think is probably a mistake. Why do you think the people who most maximize optionality are often the smartest people? They're the ones who really overvalue it or really value it the highest. Why do you think it's the smartest people in our land that really focus on optionality? Yeah. I mean, when you say smart, I mean, do you necessarily mean- Well, let's say high IQ. People who have the highest SAT scores are probably the ones that most focus on optionality. Well, I think because we're in this quote unquote meritocratic system in which people who you know have a high IQ push themselves through some sort of elite pipeline. And again, a lot of the games that we play, whether financial or status-wise, are very winner-take-all. Particularly in technology, the leverage you have by being in the right place at the right time can be enormous. Like way more than it would have been, you know, sure, joining IBM as an early engineer in the 50s was nothing like joining Facebook as an early engineer in 2008 or nine or whatever. The cost of getting things wrong or not being in the right place at the wrong time, looking at it the other way, is a lot higher. Plus the fact, again, that we're in just, and I'm going to sound like a commie, but capitalism is kind of dissolved. I don't know that it's purely capitalism's fault. Maybe it's just filled an empty void, but 
we've arrived at a point in which a lot of the traditional bonds that used to bind humans and give them meaning, family, community, culture, even ethnic tribe have been kind of dissolved in this general capitalist blah. And if that's true, then there's only one way to compete, and that's via status and net worth. Those are very one-dimensional fields of combat. I myself was in that bucket, to be clear. Like, I'm not saying I was somehow wiser than that when I was younger, but I think a lot of smart people see that, realize it for what it is, and just get on that track and often don't stop and think, well, should I really be doing this? I would think it's probably not good for society to have the smartest people in society so focused on things like status. Is there any way out of it? The thing is, humans always chase status, right? The question is, what is the, the model around how status is determined? If the status is, if you're in the Medici clan in Florence and status is determined by commissioning Michelangelo to make the most beautiful statue for the public square, then you know what? Maybe that's fine. But if it is something more superficial or frivolous, or if it's in a negative direction, I think a lot of the philanthropy in the United States goes to support various causes that are ultimately counter beneficial to the societies that they're attempting to help. Almost all charitable giving is given because it's good for the giver. Right. And the question is whether it's good for society. And the, and the question, the answer is obviously it's not, often it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly it, it's self, it's self-interested. A lot of NGOs are very committed to preserving the problems to which they submit they're the solution to. <laughs> I mean, it's rare to see an NGO say, okay, problem solved. We're closing shop. That's it. This problem is no longer an issue. On the contrary, their budgets and the scale seem to increase. If you look at the homeless problem in San Francisco, it doesn't seem like all the money has had any effect on it or something. SF City budget is the second biggest in the United States after New York. It's, they have an enormous amount of money for what's actually not a very big city. And it's not clear that more money is the highest per capita, right? It has to be. It's $11 billion and it's only 700,000 people. And so it doesn't seem as if like a lack of cash is the real issue here. Or adding cash to the, is not going to solve the problem. Yeah, I'm not sure. Dude, I don't know how to solve these problems. <laughs> On that note, I mean, this has been amazing. Thank you, Antonio Garcia Martinez, AGM, as you're well known, uh, for being a guest on World of DAS. Thank you, Oren. You know, I don't know how that AGM thing took off, to be honest. It was my acronym in the messaging system at Goldman. And somehow it's it's become a thing. It's funny. People call me that. Well, your name is so long. It's too many syllables. You need, uh, it makes sense. Three syllables is like the maximum we could do, right? I just want to be on the record. I don't foment the use of this acronym. I don't reject it. But I've had people come up to me and call me that. And it's just so interesting how it's become, it's become a thing. It's the signifier for me now. Yeah. Anyhow. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.